Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check out our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's also where you can find details of our events in person and online, including on October the 25th, live Zoom conversations with Catherine Zimmerman and Harold James. Coming up on the show today, Matthew Sturgis, author of a new biography of Oscar Wilde. Uh, Matthew, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very much. Congratulations uh, on the book. So why was this the time for A New Life of Oscar Wilde? Well, although Wilde is someone who is much written about uh, and indeed sort of every year, sort of over the uh, past decades have seen the arrival of, uh, you know, one or two books uh, about him, those books have tended to be specialist studies of sort of limited aspects of uh, uh, his life or or work, you know. um, and what there hadn't really been for a very long time was a full account of, uh, of his life uh, from the cradle to the grave. Um, really, uh, since the the late nineteen eighties, when the, uh, a wonderful book was written by um, uh, an American professor of English literature, uh, Richard Elman, and uh, perhaps inevitably, really, in those intervening decades, an enormous amount of fascinating new information, um, uh, new documents, new materials uh, had come to light, um, and dozens of new letters, uh, 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 new uh, manuscripts, um, and other uh, new sources. I mean, there was an amazing moment in the year 2000, which uh, of course was the centenary of Wilde's death, uh, when a woman turned up at the British Library with a plastic bag containing the complete transcript of uh, Wilde's first trial, the, the, the libel action that he brought against the Marquess of Queensbury, which had previously really only been known from sort of slightly abbreviated court reports and uh, newspaper articles. And so... Uh, and and that, I mean, that's something that you make devastating use of in the in the book. And, and, and in some ways, it's very much your approach. You, you point out in the beginning that uh, very often uh, books on, on Wilde are essentially literary analysis, whereas what you're doing here is working as a historian and biographer. Yes. I mean, I think to, to give a sense of Wilde's life as he lived it, I mean... Uh, Wilde exists as such an enormous figure in the cultural landscape and, you know, um, continues really to grow in stature with uh, uh, the years, that it's it's very easy to sort of think that um, he was always the, the great uh, figure that he, that he became, that, uh, that he was always the Oscar Wilde of our, uh, of our imagination, and of course of his imagination too, because he, he was a great... Um, a presenter of himself and an inventor of himself. Uh, and I thought it was worthwhile to really sort of unpick that and work, you know, through uh, the course of his life to, to show how he, you know, struggled really to, uh, to achieve um, what he did. And I, I, I sometimes wonder, is it is it the life more than the work, uh, the reason why Oscar Wilde is such an iconic figure? I mean, would would he otherwise just be uh, like some obscure Victorian uh, famous at the time, but not today, like a kind of George Du Maurier or something like um, that, for example? Well, I mean, I think his work does actually live on in... Um, in an amazingly vivid way. I mean, his his plays are still performed. I, I don't know if you were in London at all. You know, the year before the uh, the pandemic, uh, uh, 
they ran a season of his plays throughout the entire year uh, on the Strand, and you know it was a great success. Um, his his books are still read that uh, and uh, are turned into films. The picture of Dorian Gray sort of exists as a um, you know sort of vivid cultural reference point uh, really for all uh, generations. But but I think you are right as well to uh, to say that you know those achievements are perhaps overshadowed by the 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 drama of his life and the force of his personality. I mean he famously said to Andre Gide and to other people that, you know, he'd put his talent into his work and his genius into his life. And uh, there is uh, an element of truth in that. Yeah, and it really is quite an extraordinary life that uh, that you draw in in the book. I, I was very struck by something that he says uh, when he's when he's a young man that uh, there are no emotions, only adjectives. But I, I think you show in the book that that's really not something that he would have said by the end of his life. No, I mean he had certainly been uh, put through the uh, the emotional ringer um, by the by the end of his uh, his life, and that, and. You know, it is a, an extraordinary uh, drama, really, to, uh, that, that unfolds. That you know, at the very height of his success, uh, really through, you know, what seems like a, uh, you know, the classic uh, uh, hubris of the Greek uh, tragedians, he he brings disaster upon himself by this ill-advised legal action against the Marquis of Queensbury that uh, uh, that you know, veers off in an unexpected direction and suddenly uh, sort of uh, opens up a, a sort of chasm of ruin before him. And there, there, there is throughout almost a, a conscious sense of of embracing creative destruction. You have this moment where he's he's been on a moderately successful tour of the United States and uh, is a moderately controversial figure. But but the the point where he kind of embraces particularly homosexuality is a kind of a time when his life actually seems very conventional. He even has a terrible haircut at, uh, <laughs> at this point. And you have a line where you you say that he. He'd not only been forgiven, but he'd been forgotten, uh, which for Wilde seems almost the worst thing of all. Well, well, I think it it was. I mean, I think that he sort of felt the uh, the, the walls of respectability closing in on him at that cer- certain moment during the, uh, the the sort of middle years of the eighteen eighties when uh, he'd got married to this uh, this lovely, uh, unfortunately very wealthy Irish girl, uh, Constance Lloyd. They had two children. They'd set up this um, rather oversmart house in uh, in Chelsea together. He'd um, had a successful lecturing and review, reviewing career, and uh, was just about to be offered um, uh, uh, work as the editor of a woman's magazine. And it all seemed to be running sort of uh, along these rather conventional rails. And I, I think the desire to escape that, he'd always seen himself as an unconventional uh, figure. And, I, and uh, I think his sort of discovery and embrace of, of homosexuality was part of that escape and certainly uh, seems to have um, really unleashed an enormous amount of uh, both emotional and creative energy in him.
And and you're not afraid to show the nastier side of Wilde either. That um, I mean, this this is not the kind of chummy, witty Stephen Fry incarnation that we've seen we've seen on the television and and the and the big screen. That I mean, Wilde he's he's predatory, he's snobbish, he's narcissistic. Um, he he's he's not a nice person, is he? You, you well, he has his uh, yes, his bad moments, and I think like. Um, like many of us, his you know his worst faults are sort of uh, you know are gross exaggerations of his best points as uh, as well. And um, I I think there's no doubt that as he, as he ha- as he had this sort of moment of extraordinary success in the in the early uh, 1890s when he managed to produce you know four plays uh, in a very short period of time, and each one was a huge success. I mean it. Um, Critics at the time, you know, noted that uh, that had never really been achieved before by a um, a playwright. That their you know their first four uh, London productions were all great successes, and it it sort of went to his head. I mean, he um, he had money. Uh, I mean, of course, he always spent more money than he actually had, but he was sort of living on the expectation of more. Um, and there's no doubt it did sort of caution his. Uh, uh, his character and or his dealings with uh, with other people in a very yes unfortunate um, and unhappy way and unhappy for him too and I think he came to recognise that uh, obviously sitting uh, alone in his cell in Reading. It, it, it is one of the things that you do so well in this book, that uh, which, which is not uh, in any way a hagiography. You do not uh, flinch at any point from some of the darker uh, darker moments. That, but, but at the same time, as you say, you do have this incredible early creativity that you've just described there, woman of no importance, ideal husband, Lady Windermere's fan, and, and so on. While at the same time, uh, you have the friends of procuring underage boys for for sex um he's regularly seducing school children um it kind of the, there's the the way the way in which he kind of behaves with a kind of the young kind of coterie of undergraduates around him and so on so that that i did wonder when i was reading this that there's definitely a touch of the the jeffrey epstein the me too celebrity the kind of celebrity culture being uh, abused I, I i wonder how that affected you and your thinking on wild when you when you were writing the book um yes i mean it, it's a sort of difficult um uh sort of um thread to to follow exactly but i mean and of course the the question of sort of underage or whatever i, I think the the youngest um uh chap he's known to have uh, seduced i think is alfonso conway who was uh, was 16 um and I, I think at the end of the book, there's a there's a character who's four, a boy who's fourteen. Well, but that, that that was one of uh, Lord Alfred Douglas's. That was someone that Douglas seduced in in Paris. And and there's there is a description of Wilde's sort of ideal um, uh, young young man, young boy, whatever you want to call him, uh, being a sort of eighteen to nineteen year old with uh, with crisp dark hair. Um, so I do, yes, I don't think. It was extreme youth that um, uh, was the thing that sexually attracted him enormously. So, um, uh, but but there was also that sort of social element that 
so there was in the, the, the sort of early stages of his um, exploration of his uh, of his homosexual uh, life, he was really um, finding his partners amongst his social equals, young men just down from the university, actors uh, or whatever on the London stage. Uh, and then it was really through his connection uh, with Alfred Douglas, who was uh, um, intrigued and excited by this underworld of Victorian vice, these young uh, boys who hung around uh, uh, Piccadilly and elsewhere, uh, that he he sort of uh, began to take on that sort of uh, uh, predatory um, uh, exploration of uh, uh, of the scene, and um, uh, and it yes, I mean it certainly marked a downward step, I think, in his sort of engagement with life. I mean, a lot of this becomes public, as as you say, as you said earlier, in in the in the two trials that he finds himself uh, involved in. Um, the first of first of which is when he uh, sues the Marquis of Queensbury, uh, Lord Alfred Douglas's father, uh, who has accused him of of the the kind of crimes that that you were talking about there. Um, I, I mean, it, it, he he brought this on himself, didn't he? His 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 wife, his lawyers, everybody uh, urged him not to sue uh, Lord Queensbury, but uh, is that kind of part of the, the hubris, the, the narcissism that uh, he thinks he's just above it all? Yes, I, there is an, an element of that, but of course I think when he brought the action he thought that he was taking on Queensbury um, on the grounds of uh, his own relationship with Alfred Douglas. I mean, that was in, indeed what uh, was uh, affronting Queensbury and, and was all that really um, uh, Queensbury knew uh, of Wilde's um, sort of slightly doubtful sexual um, character as he saw it. Um, and uh, and Wilde, egged on by Douglas, thought, well, they could fight on that ground. They could obviously, uh, you know, choose to deny, uh, you know, any, any improper relationship of much of a falsehood that would be. Um, and sort of uh, paint their relationship in the colours of, um, uh, you know, a platonic ideal of this, uh, you know, the, that sort of vision laid out by Plato in the symposium of how, uh, you know, when an older man is uh, loves a, a beautiful youth, it is uh, a great um, uh, sort of gateway to the creation of beautiful works of art, uh, an inspiration in a way. And uh, and then sort of uh, as the, the the case advanced, really by a sort of concatenation of accidents, which I try to draw out in the in the book, um, Queensbury's solicitors got onto the trail of uh, these uh, uh, some of these rent boys and put pressure on them to make statements uh, uh, about their relations with with Wilde, and so. You know, when he entered initially into the into the case, he thought, uh, and indeed his solicitor and his friends, they all thought he was going to win. That you know, Queensbury would have uh, uh, been convicted of a criminal libel. He would have been sent to prison. And um, uh, but but then, um, yes, the, the unexpected consequences uh, began to pile up, and this sort of devastating uh, dossier was produced. Um, listing you know the whole of uh, uh, of wild's hidden life
And uh, not the least of his uh, unfortunate um, uh, kind of uh, coming across Edward Carson, somebody who who Wilde already knew from from Ireland, uh, but one of the the greatest barristers uh, probably in in English legal history, uh, who absolutely gutted him like a fish in that trial. Yes, I mean uh, it was a, a, a sort of bitter uh, additional <laughs> sort of uh, blow that uh, uh, Queensbury's. Uh, a barrister in the uh, in the case was um, Carson, who had been at university uh, with Wilde, and of course Wilde had been such a a brilliant student at, at Trinity. This was before Wilde went to Oxford. He, uh, he um, uh, had been at Trinity College, uh, Dublin, and was really one of the star pupils there. And he remembered Carson as a sort of a, a, a plodder, really, a sort of. Um, uh, not one of the uh, the leading lights, and so to have suddenly be reconfronted with him in uh, in the old Bailey uh, and find this figure who he's always slightly condescended towards um, uh, uh, being uh, an implacable uh, foe was uh, uh, <coughs> was really an, uh, an awful. Thing. I mean, it's one of the it's it's one of the interesting elements that I mean he, he talks about this in uh, his his famous letter De Profundis, which he which he wrote when he was in prison uh, after the second of the of the second of the trials. That uh, if if he hadn't sued Queensbury, the government, society, they would would have left him alone. Uh, I mean, he ad, he admits that. So it, it's it's often used this trial as a as a good example of the uh, of the hypocrisy of of Victorian society and so on, but but it, but in some ways there there was an accommodation for different lifestyles and different approaches in Victorian society that uh, could but which could not sustain being brought into the harsh light of the legal system. Would would that be a would that be the correct way of seeing that? Uh, yes, I mean I think it, it definitely would, and, and that I think also gave Wild his sort of false sense of security um, beforehand in that he knew of um, other men of uh, you know power and position who had similar tastes uh, to him and um, were um, sort of uh, not harassed by the, the law and there was a general feeling um, you know by the uh, police and the legal profession that actually that these cases uh, you know, were, were were something to be avoided rather than um, uh, pursued, um, if possible, because you know they, they they just sort of alerted the wider public to uh, to uh, to this world, which uh, they might be intrigued and interested by, um, uh, and uh, be led into even. Um, so, uh, so yes, I mean, it, it wasn't as if he was hunted hunted down. Um, uh, sort of by the uh, the forces of society and the law uh, until he had expo- exposed himself to it. I mean, it's it's interesting. He go he ends up in in various prisons. Finally, in in Reading Jail, um, uh, which obviously he he later wrote famously about in the in the Ballad of of Reading Jail. I mean, you you detail how dreadful that experience was for him, kind of early on. But but I am also struck that by the the end of the the period that he was in prison, uh, it, it almost seemed to be one of the happier moments in his life. 
life that uh, he he's kind of he seems more emotionally kind of stable he has more humility and uh, only after he's he he gets out of prison uh, does he kind of uh, descend into a, a place where he's much unhappier obviously he will he will die earlier i, I do, again what, what does that experience mean it wasn't it wasn't what i expected when i when i went in um, and started reading that 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 section well yes i think i mean his prison experience was um you know sort of multifaceted in, in that um it, you know, it began at pentonville which was horrible then he was moved to wandsworth which in a way was even worse the um the, you know the, the guards the other prisoners the um uh, the the regime was uh, was brutally hard uh, upon him um and then there was an idea he had friends within the system within the home office who who um were trying to do what they could to sort of um mitigate uh um a sentence you know his experience of a, a sentence that couldn't be changed and so the idea was that he should be moved to reading and that, that this smaller country jail would be um, less oppressive but when he arrived there the the um uh, the uh, the the uh, governor at the time <clears throat> was a very unsympathetic man and so things didn't really improve there uh, until that governor was replaced by by major nelson really for the last quarter or slightly more than than quarter of, of wild sentence and then suddenly everything changed because uh, nelson who wild famously described as you know, the most christ-like man i've ever met uh did everything he could within the the very strict um, limits of the system uh, to improve the quality of um, of Wilde's uh, life by um, giving him access really to reading materials and writing materials uh, by re reducing uh, the amount of uh, manual labor he had to do uh, by giving him more exercise by improving his diet offering him the luxury of white bread uh, as it said in the uh, in the prison records, and and suddenly, yes, Wilde felt this sort of um, uh, you know dawning of uh, of possibility, and uh, he said you know just handling a pen again, but uh, sort of made him feel uh, in touch with uh, with his former self, and uh, in a way he had everything you know all his bodily wants and cares. Um, uh, provided by the uh, by the prison in their limited form and he could uh, write and think and uh, and read and uh, you're not wrong to su suggest that that did seem to create a uh, a moment of uh, quiet and contentment and contemplation and um and you know i think he came out of prison determined to try and preserve that and it was really some of the rebuffs that he received um on leaving uh, jail that sort of meant that he was unable to sustain that. Yeah, and those those rebuffs are, th are then kind of lead to kind of further, uh, I suppose, further difficulties for him. He kind of becomes more outrageous in his behaviour, and so that leads to even further rebuffs. And uh, I guess today we, we would say essentially that he is cancelled by the end of his life. Um, yes, I mean, I think he, he sort of realized that there was um or it became clearer and clearer to him that there, there was no way back for him into society um which 
which had been such a, a, a sort of huge aspect of his uh, of his pre-prison life and something that he'd enjoyed um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the color and the sociability and the I suppose the you know, the snobbish excitement uh, of it as uh, as well and all that was um, swept uh, from him I mean and he descended really into a sort of bohemian world which was not something that um, that previously he'd, he'd sort of felt any real sympathy uh, with and and I mean he of course he had a, a sort of gift for, for finding pleasures in things so, so although there were undoubtedly moments of sadness and loneliness and he sort of felt he lacked the real creative energy to uh, produce anything after the Ballad of Reading Jail um, you know he still took huge pleasure in talking to, uh, to other people and entertaining them with his uh, with his stories uh, but it was yes definitely a, a sort of retreat to an ever smaller uh, circle of friends and acquaintances and and what about the the afterlife why, why is it do you think that he becomes such an iconic fig, uh, figure how how does that happen um i mean i think um the I mean, the work does play a huge part in that. I mean, they, the, uh, in that, um, you know, even actually while he was in prison and, um, uh, and certainly immediately afterwards, his, his plays continued to be performed um, and enjoyed, or maybe not in, um, uh, you know, in the West End, but over the rest of the, uh, the country and abroad and, and whatever. And people, um, you know, were engaged with his uh, his voice always, and then I think when um, uh, extracts of De Profundis, this letter that he'd written uh, originally to Alfred Douglas, but uh, a copy had been kept by, or the original had been kept by uh, Robbie Ross, and th then he published um, extracts of it um, in the decade after Wilde's death, and people saw that he you know there was this contrition that he and felt something of what he'd suffered uh, i think that uh, sort of reconnected him with uh, uh you know the the literary and cultural life of uh, uh of the english speaking world and beyond as well and uh, people saw you know here was a um was a great figure who had suffered and suffered horribly and i think that 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 led people back to him. And I, I, I got the sense from reading the book, as I, as I said earlier, you do not flinch in the, in the face of um, so many of the, the details uh, surrounding Wilde's life, which um, are, are, at, at times are, are difficult to read in the book, but you are fearless in the way that you deal with those. And yet I, I, I genuinely get a sense that um, you still feel that he was a great figure, uh, not just as a, as a literary figure, but, but also that he, his life represents uh, something not just interesting, but important too. Yes, I mean, I, th I think... Um... It does. I mean, I, I think that sort of uh, his defiant contrarianism, uh, in a way, is um, estimable and and um, uh, inspiring to uh, to many. That uh, that uh, you needn't be um, uh, constrained in your imagination by uh, the demands and the expectations uh, of. Uh, 
well, both society and um, uh, and I suppose your your own fears and limitations. Um, and also, I mean, I think he's interesting. I mean, in his his in his failures and his um, uh, uh, his failings, uh, as as well as his successes. I mean, I think one aspect of his life that has become sort of more and more relevant is his um, his sort of early recognition of and engagement with what we now think of as celebrity culture in that, you know, when he arrived in London from uh, having left Oxford, he was determined to become famous, really, uh, at the expense of everything else. And amazingly, he did so. <laughs> and uh, he is an early example of someone who was famous, really, for being famous. And like many celebrities, he he, he then was faced with the, 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 the question and the difficulty of how to you know, monetize that fame, as you might uh, say. And uh, he clearly thought that it was going to help his artistic career. And I think what he found was that it hindered uh, his artistic career, which actually sort of took uh, another 10 years, really, to get off the, the ground. Uh, and, 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 and I suppose it is that, I mean, it's that classic thing that we we think about, um, I mean, famous examples, Peter Schaffer's Amadeus, the kind of the film about Mozart, that uh, the conflict between behaviour uh, and creative genius and and how difficult it is for us sometimes to to reconcile an output which is um, maybe magnificent and, and a life that, um, frankly, sometimes we can struggle with. Yes, although, of course, Wilde's sort of public presentation of his life was really quite in uh, in tune uh, with his um, uh, with his oeuvre, uh, with his creations. I mean, in that he presented himself as this, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, witty, eloquent, um, uh, 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 contrarian figure. Uh, and you you would find uh, that wit and that eloquence and that playfulness with ideas uh, in his work, um, uh, and often yes, his conversation would um, you know echo uh, his plays, or his plays would echo his conversation. I mean, uh, whichever uh, way the uh, the influence ran, and then it was, I suppose, yes, the discovery of that uh, that hidden life uh, underneath it all you know it uh, that is a shock and uh, uh, was a shock to his contemporaries so the book is oscar wilde a life it's written by my guest matthew sturgis and published by knopf but for now matthew congratulations again and thanks for joining us on bookstack uh, thank you very much for having me so that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Rusick. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.